Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing those titles chosen by the Criterion Collection for preservation. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we answer the siren call of Agnieszka Szmoczynska's The Lure in our 23rd episode. Premiering in Poland on Christmas Day 2015, this genre-bending debut by director Agnieszka Szmoczynska offers audiences an audacious ride through an alternate 1980s Warsaw in which Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid is brought to ferocious modern life for 92 minutes of music and horror. Mermaid sisters Golden and Silver, played by Michalina Olszanska and Marta Mazurek, come ashore and explore the world of men as they become an overnight sensation in a nightclub. While Golden remains resolute in her identity as a mermaid, Silver becomes infatuated with the club's bassist, Miatik, and considers abandoning a life of feasting on human hearts to become human herself. Robert Bolesto's screenplay blends the musical and horror genres with help from the eclectic musical stylings of Barbara and Shuzhana Vronska, whose songs and score channel 80s electronica in an hypnotic fashion. Under the direction of Shmoshinska, the lure is by turns surreal, confounding, disturbing, lighthearted, and melancholic. After traveling the festival circuit throughout 2016, the film made its commercial U.S. debut in a limited release on February 1, 2017, before being given home video life by the Criterion Collection in October of the same year. Take a swim into the mermaid's id as we discuss the lure. Well, Matt, for The Lure, we have not talked about this movie much at all. As a matter of fact, besides, I think, by saying that I was going to pick it, we haven't talked about it at all, to my knowledge. No. So, having just seen it for the first time yourself, what are your thoughts about The Lure? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, well, Can I make a prediction? Yeah. I'm going to predict that you hated this movie. It's pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. I mean, I, <laughs> it's it's hard for me to completely hate a movie, but I mean, this one, yeah, this is just not my my kind of film at all. And I'm guessing you picked it for that reason uh, because you have that you know vindictive side to you, or or resentful, or or whatever you want to call it. Um, or just a plain old bastard. Yeah, that too. Um, yeah, th- this is, I mean, the cinematic equivalent to, to sadism in many ways for me anyway. But uh, I, I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to step back and try to look at it objectively. But um, just first reactions, it, it's just, this kind of embodies what I really do not like about a lot of art films, I guess. Um, and I understand what the filmmaker is doing here. Okay. This is a modern reinterpretation of the little mermaid. I get that. Um, there's a lot of metaphor, uh, being interspersed throughout, but it's just, it's trying very, very hard to be bizarre. And this is the problem I have with John Waters. This is the problem I have with a lot of David Lynch's work. It's just, it's trying to be bizarre for the sake of being bizarre in many 
instances, in my opinion. Uh, and I find that I don't find that particularly artistic or particularly profound uh, when those kinds of devices find their way into a film. And so first impression didn't sit well with me. Uh, I felt it was pretty exploitative in many ways. Uh, not a big fan of 80s music. Not a big fan of musicals in general, I guess. I probably should start by saying that. Um, so I, part of my opinion for, uh, for this film is informed by just the kinds of genres I like or don't like. Uh, but first impressions, this, this is a rough watch for me. When I, uh, when I watched it, I saw it for the very first time last fall and a few minutes into it, I thought to myself, either I'm going to go with this movie or I'm not. Yeah. And I chose to go with it and I loved it. So I, I love this movie. Um, (laughs) that being said, I'm not going to entirely discredit your reaction uh, yeah. because I do think there are some moments that are rough in it in terms of the uh, bizarre for the sake of being bizarre. There's a few spots where I think there's some truth to that, right? Mm-hmm. And there's definitely some elements where you can see clearly a David Lynch inspiration. Uh, the shots that are cutting to this character of Triton who comes out of nowhere sort of as a monstrous figure it's very much the kind of thing I would expect in terms of how David Lynch edits and structures a movie. So there are things like that that you can definitely see in it. That being said, uh, I found it, I would say, I, definitely I would disagree with the claim that it's uh, exploitative, uh, though I do, con- I do concede that it's a fine line, right? When you're trying to make a film, which I think this film's about exploitation, how do you yourself not become exploitative in that process? Well, uh, so it is a tricky thing to. Yeah, I mean that that's a tricky balance, but I, I think this film spills over into the bad side of that. I mean, there's just there's a lot of fetishizing going on in this movie. I think, and I understand the the setting. You know, it's in a seedy nightclub. I get that. But um, I felt like there there would have been a, a more tasteful way of approaching that. But I, I just don't think that the film is interested in being tasteful. I think it's it's trying actively not to be tasteful uh, to to garner attention. So it, it it goes along with I think some of the goals of the film in general. Well, let's talk about perhaps the the film as just a genre piece. Uh, and I know that genre is something I find absolutely fascinating because philosophically it's just an interesting concept. If a film is a part of a genre, you naturally have certain expectations and understandings of what that genre is. And if it matches that genre well, then you'd consider it successful. However, there's a, a kind of a natural contradiction, a philosophical conundrum, which is that that should also bore me, right? But that people wind up finding certain genres very much what they want to see, right? So a Western, a musical, a horror film, uh, the British period drama, whatever it might be, right? There's a certain structure that people want and certain beats that they want within it. 
If you deviate too much from it, people get upset. If you repeat it too precisely, people get upset. So genre is just, to me, a philosophically rich area of consideration for literature, whether that's cinematic literature or if it's a novel, uh, if it's music. I think that genre is just a fascinating thing. Now what you have coming more and more is this genre blending, right? So you have, in this case, the making of a horror film plus a musical, and I would say predominantly a musical, uh, more than it is a horror film, although it does certainly have its horror elements within it. Uh, to me, this is a perfect example of a, uh, of a modern fairy tale. Obviously, you mentioned, and I mentioned in the opening, right, the updating of The Little Mermaid, but I think far cry from the Disney idea of, of fairy tales, really getting back at the essence of them in terms of their uh, absurdity and of the way in which they can be shocking. I think we have become a sort of uh, anesthetized to fairy tales in the modern world, having been raised in Disney, that they were shocking and they were maybe exploitative in a sense, or they were um, these uh, maybe perhaps unseemly uh, kinds of stories. Uh We've just had it so whitewashed for so long in our own upbringing, but this gets at the heart of a fairy tale uh, and of what it really is supposed to be, sort of a retrieving of it in its classical form. Uh, so I appreciated that, and I found it just as a fascinating film in terms of how it blends these two seemingly irreconcilable genres of a horror and a musical, because with the musical element, right, it's hard to make a film that's particularly scary. Uh, if you have these elaborate dance numbers in shopping malls and stores like they have in this, you don't really see a scary movie, right? It doesn't have the ability to evoke suspense or fear the way uh, a typical horror film would. At the same time, it's not light and fanciful the way you think of as a musical. And it's not the first thing. Sonderheim's musicals obviously were more dark and cynical than, uh, say, a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical would have been. So they're not the first to do this. But I do think it's fascinating that they're blending these genres and having them play off of each other. Uh, and the aesthetic um, evocation that it makes as a result of that is one that I found rather rather uh, enjoyable uh, to experience, both in uh, terms of the visual as well as the sound design. So I really found it an interesting uh, work because of the genre piece, uh, but I also found it because of the foreign language aspect, right? Not being in English, what I found really fascinating was the way the Polish played out here. Uh, I read that this was actually the first Polish musical, which huh. I found that hard to believe, so I did do a little research, and it sounds like there was a Polish musical in 1937 called Hulka. Uh, I've never heard of it, uh, but that's the only one I've ever found another reference to. So maybe Poland just doesn't have a lot of musicals. I don't know. Um, otherwise, there's just as a, a whole bunch of them that maybe never made it out uh, during the uh, the Cold War that just never made it to a Western audience. So uh, I just be curious to know if there is uh, a lot of Polish musicals. Uh, but I think what's interesting about this is that it makes it very hard to come to this film as an English speaker. I, I don't know a word of Polish. And so, in one sense, I found it to be both an asset and a detraction in watching this film. Uh, detraction in the sense that it's hard to translate, period, right, into subtitles when you're watching a foreign film. Yeah. Uh, and to translate lyrics into subtitles for a musical, it's very tough. And so I think a lot of it's probably lost on 
me at least as an English viewer, uh, I cannot possibly really appreciate fully the lyrics, the songwriting in that regard. Uh, you know, you get a gist of what the songs are about, but I don't think you really get the full sense of what's going on with the, the songwriting. And since this is so heavily musical, uh, naturally that creates a, a serious divide between me and the film. But I also found there being sort of an asset, maybe an unintentional one, uh, well, certainly I think an unintentional one because it was made for a Polish audience, uh, but that it has the sort of sense of otherworldliness because of this, right? Uh, the music, I find this kind of music very intoxicating. I, I very much like the electronica music of the 80s. And so uh, to hear it and to hear it in this foreign language and not fully understand it, uh, was very much an intriguing thing to me, and it's not unlike the idea of a siren song uh, and that being kind of drawn to some sort of musical calling. Uh, so those are just a few thoughts I have regarding the genre. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Matt, just with regard to genre and how this film uses genre. Yeah, I, I guess I have to disagree with you. I mean, you seem to you seem to think that they blended these elements quite well, and I, I felt like there was a lot of clashing going on. I guess. I mean, the, the horror elements in particular, I mean, I, I understand taking the, the story of Little Mermaid and the whole idea of losing the tail and gaining legs and turning that into kind of like this body horror element. And that's really front and center in certain sequences in the film. But I, they kind of, I mean, they were kind of born out of this grimy, you know, sort of nightclub environment that the film takes place in. So in a way, that may be a natural extension of that, but some of the gore elements of the horror elements just seemed very, very forced to me and just not very elegantly, you know, interwoven in the film. I mean, all of a sudden we'd cut to one of the mermaids and they'd have the sharp kind of awkward looking teeth and, and there was clearly a lot of cutting around their transformations probably from a budgetary standpoint, just not able to, to use a lot of visual effects. So just kind of cutting back and forth between these elements felt kind of jarring to me. And then just looking at it as a musical, I, I felt it was very underwhelming too because there were a couple sequences that were well choreographed and well um, you know, well directed from a, a musical aesthetic standpoint you know you mentioned the one in the in the grocery store in the the department store but overall it was basically just musical sequences with the band playing right and uh there were some elegant camera moves and some interesting cinematography uh from that standpoint but there are also just a lot of random shots of people just kind of gyrating around and or just kind of gently swaying and sitting and i just felt that those parts were underwhelming. I mean, is this a, a concert film? Is this a musical? I mean, which is it? It didn't seem to quite decide what it wanted to be. And I understand it's taking place in a nightclub, so we're going to have nightclub sequences, but um, kind of folding those into a musical, I, there has to be some sense of heightened reality i think to those sequences beyond how the film presents them for them to qualify as musical sequences uh so i i felt it it fell short in that regard too um but it, it's an interesting attempt to try to blend these genres together um you know i can see this film appealing to a lot of people especially david lynch fans uh there's just a lot of david lynch influence in this i felt like um, 
but it's funny. This film reminded me a lot of uh, Cassavetti's Killing of a Chinese Bookie uh, insofar as I wished I was watching that movie instead of this one. Well, um, certainly, <laughs> I, that doesn't surprise me to hear you say that. I will say uh, John Cassavetes was far from my mind as I watched this film. Uh, so I, I can't say that I, uh, I, I made any sort of direct connection one way or another. Um, I guess I would say I disagree with your assessment of how a musical is supposed to work. I don't know that they have to work uh, with this heightened reality. I, I know that's a, what a lot of people think. It's a lot of how it is done. And certainly it makes sense when that is done that way. But I don't know that it needs to be that a, a musical works in that t- particular form. Well, may, Indeed, maybe the, not all the time. The, maybe the most effective. Yeah. Well, well, one of the most effective examples would be Cabaret, right? Bob Fosse's Cabaret doesn't do a heightened reality at all. And it's, of course, also set in a nightclub, in a cabaret. But, I mean, it's all the more effective for it. And I, I don't think you would think of it as being a failed musical because it doesn't have a lab, elaborate song and dance numbers that exist in this sort of alternate world. I mean, it exists very much in a real-world setting. So I think this is approaching that in a certain sense. Now, there are kind of, I think you could say there's three different distinct ways in which they have... Uh, handled the musical scenes in this, right? One is that they have these, a few spots where they're very elaborately choreographed and it's, it's like a a classical, how you would think of a musical number in a, in a movie, right? So there's a couple of those. Then there's a number of them that are, I guess you could say sort of real world based, right? In sense that it's in the nightclub itself. And so maybe more like a concert uh, approach, mm-hmm. and then there's a couple that are almost more like music videos, uh, where they're in, say, the apartment, uh, and they have a couple of different uh, scenes going through there, right? So I think you have uh, three different ways in which they're maybe handling musical numbers in this film, and I think it ultimately works well altogether. I just didn't feel like there was enough cohesion there. I just it was too jarring stylistically for me. Well, I think, I mean, certainly it is jarring, right? And that's where, again, I remember thinking to myself, either I'm going with this or I'm not, and yeah. I chose to go with it. Uh, but I, I don't know that being jarring is necessarily to say that it's a fault. I mean, some things are jarring. Uh, I don't know that the movie has a responsibility to not be jarring to us. Uh, and sometimes perhaps the jarring nature of something is an asset, right? I think this being so audacious, so rambunctious, in a sense, is part of why it works uh, as a film, is that it is so jarring and it is so willing to to say to hell with the normal rules and kind of go and chart its own course. Uh, I think that it, it works precisely because it is doing that. And again, I think that gets at sort of the idea of fairy tale, right? Fairy tales are jarring. Again, we're so used to them and we've heard them in such a... Uh, we have come to fairy tales like The Little Mermaid from not just the Disney influence, but just from other childhood influences that I think we've we've had them so watered down that we don't see them in their original form. And this is a sort of a retrieving of what that orig- original experience of a fairy tale would be like. Uh, and so for that reason, I think that the jarring nature of it isn't a problem. Well, I think your point is well taken in terms of kind of re-exposing people to the idea that fairy tales can be very dark, disturbing stories. I mean, when it goes through the Disney filter, it can get very, um, very softened, right, for, for a general audience. 
But if you look back at the original text for a lot of these fairy tales, I mean, these are some heavy stories. I mean, these are archetypal stories that are about fighting demonic forces uh, often and, you know, finding spiritual enlightenment and salvation and very grand themes. And, and that typically involves um, quite a bit of darkness and, and, and quite a bit of horror. So I, I think your point's taken here to say, okay, this is, you know, re-revealing maybe some of those aspects to a modern audience, reminding them that, hey, these stories um, are not about selling you know, plush toys, there, there's something darker here and, and there's maybe something more to glean from them. Um, so, I mean, if that was part of the goal of this film, I mean, I think that's, that's admirable. Um, but just from a, a story standpoint, uh, it's a pretty threadbare script. I mean, I, I think the, the elements from the little mermaid are there, but all, seemingly almost out of obligation to try to uh, have some semblance of story. And there's quite a few plot points jammed into the very end of this film. I mean, most of the film just kind of takes a time. It takes its time to set up atmosphere and, um, and character, which I, when you're building a world that's so surreal, I suppose you kind of need that time. But about two thirds of the way in, I felt like, Oh, they, they were trying to, they remember that they kind of had to tell a story and, and, and you kind of had that series of dominoes fall in the last portion of the film. So from a writing standpoint, I felt this film was, was fairly weak as well. Um, yeah, I, again, I, I see what the goals were. I just don't think they were achieved here for me anyway. Well, let's talk a little bit about, cause, uh, it's that question of style versus substance, right? Yeah. This certainly is rich in style, uh, and maybe we can focus in on that for a while and then maybe move into the question of substance sure. after we kind of explore the style for a bit. Um, I think in some ways this, if I could like it to anything, as you were thinking of John Cassavetes, I was thinking of Cormac McCarthy, and uh, the <laughs> fact that his novels are very much the style is the point, right? The style communicates the ideas uh, in, his, in his writing. And so I saw in Shmojnitska's, uh, uh, in her direction, that is the point, right? Uh, the many, in many ways, the sound design, the camera movement, the lighting is articulating ideas. So the style, I think, becomes very much the way in which we are going to be exposed to what this movie is about. Now, it's her feature film debut. And mm-hmm. so I think we can see some roughness in it. And there are some spots where you go, yeah, that it's very weird. You know, you just like, this is weird. I'm not sure what this is he doing here or why that's there. Uh, I'm willing to go with it. Uh, but certainly I think a more refined and more experienced director would have greater command of some of these elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of the scene where uh, we have this dream, I guess you would say, where the two mermaids are breastfeeding uh, at the... At the uh, I get about well, the breasts of the uh, singer of the lead singer, right? Chrysia. And so I think when you see that, um, you, you recognize, yeah, that seems just a little too out of place, right? A little too weird, maybe for its own good. But 
I think ultimately she winds up having these wonderful flourishes as a director that really do help convey the the, the essence of it. Uh, there's subtle things she does in how she stages the uh, musical numbers, the direct camera address. Uh, and so the sense that there's just these times where they're breaking that fourth wall and they are speaking to you directly as an audience. I, I really do like that. Uh, and I also... Uh, thought there's a neat thing uh, when uh, Golden goes and she picks up the man that eventually she will eat, right? When she gives this little siren call to him in this subtle way, they they rack the focus uh, to show that. So there's just little uh, flourishes like that. Uh, even the costume design, right? Uh, there's a point when they kind of go all goth in their in their costumes. Uh, the shoulder pads have scales on them, you know, to remind us of the animal instinct of of these uh, two creatures, these mermaids. So there's just things like that that I really did enjoy in her directing. And I think, uh, as I said, you know, uh, going into the mermaid's id, I think that's what this film is getting at, is the id uh, of a kind of a beast. And uh, because of that, it's naturally a little more unfocused. Uh, but that's part of the of the the success or the strength of the film in that regard and that it's ultimately the style the 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 strength of the style i think ultimately helps it to really achieve some some cinematic weight yeah some of the visuals are pretty impressive i mean i i did like uh, some of the steady cam work i thought was was neat and uh the the shot at the very end too with uh with silver turning into foam was really elegant that, that looked like an in-camera effect almost where the camera kind of panned away and she was gone and that was I, I thought that was a really neat shot actually um and i th- there is a consistency to the visual style here certainly i mean for a debut feature i think you know it has has a lot of vision in that regard. And we, we probably need to recognize the production designer and the costume designer too, uh, and the work they did. But, um, the, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like you said, I think you have to accept the film for what it is and go with it from the very beginning. And if you're not buying into it, I think it's a tough go. And unfortunately for me, I think I fell into that latter camp. Uh, but the, I mean, there's a lot of promise here. I'm curious to see what this director does next. I mean, I hope, I hope she finds a voice kind of beyond echoing some of her inspirations, which I felt this film kind of fell into that, into that camp more that you, you could really see what her influences were here. I think, um, but hopefully she finds more of a, an individual voice down the road. Uh, be curious to see what she does next. Well, certainly, I mean, with a feature film debut, right, it's always, um, there's going to naturally be, I think, an immaturity in a voice and perhaps a, a reliance upon other work. I mean, it's at least typically there's, obviously, yeah. I'm sure you could cite, different uh, examples of someone who really does emerge with a very clear, distinct voice right off the bat. Uh, But for the most part, people are going to be still quoting uh, what they know, right? Uh, Because they haven't necessarily fully developed or matured or developed all the necessary confidence they need in that. That being said, I think she's doing more than just citing 
her influences here. I think there is a distinct voice in this uh, direction. And I think part of it's, you know, having just done some research and finding out a little bit about her uh, and her own experiences, that she grew up in a similar sort of environment uh, in the sense of having a mother that was running a restaurant that had a musical uh, dance studio within it. And so that a lot of these elements are clearly being pulled from her own life, uh, some of the small little throwaway things. Uh, uh, so I think there's some element to which you can see, okay, she's, she's articulating something in a, in a very fantastical way of her own growing up in the 1980s. Uh, so I do think there's something of her there. But I would also say I think that in terms of the sensibilities she brings as a woman, that's where it's so different than like a David Lynch for example, yes, clearly there's Lynchian, or actually I think probably more than him, there's David Cronenberg influences here, uh, particularly with regard to the body horror elements. Yeah, I but can see that. this is being done with a feminine insight, and I think particularly with regard to, say, the question of how the nudity is handled, it is so different than what a man would have done with the nudity in this film. Uh, think of this compared to like a Bertolucci film. Uh, there's always a little bit of tintillating going on with female nudity uh, in one of his films, and even in a David Lynch film. Or it's so absurdist uh, that it's you know that it's it's not even like a, a a human figure almost in some of those other works, right? This one, uh, the way they handle like the mermaids coming first uh, into the world uh, off of the shore, you know, you have them. Uh, be very much carefree, like animals would be. I mean, you know, a, a dog, a cat isn't sitting around thinking about whether its genitalia is exposed, right? Uh, it just is an animal, right? And I think they well, maybe capture they that should. very well here. <laughs> well, you're not a person with a pet, so I will say I think uh, uh, <laughs> that maybe there's just a, a lack of awareness of how an animal works here. <laughs> oh, you're, you're not, um, your, your point's well taken, yeah. I mean... Yeah, I still felt it spilled over into exploitative territory at times, but um, and part of it probably just comes from the European sensibility of of you know uh, filmmakers from that part of the world. It's just less of a an issue, uh, but I don't know. I, I well, I, I'll let you finish your thought. Well, no, I mean. It's, it's a good question, right? I think nudity in film is something that should be taken with a great amount of moral responsibility by filmmakers, right? Yeah. I'm not opposed to it. I, I really genuinely think that it can be done in a meritorious way. Yeah. But I also think it can be done in an exploitative way. It oftentimes is done in an exploitative way, in a gratuitous way, right? So uh, that was very much the case with a lot of action movies that were coming out when you and I would have been growing up, right? Mm -hmm. There'd be the gratuitous sex scene thrown into the middle of the movie, sort of stops the plot, all of a sudden, sex scene, all right, now let's move on again, right? And so you had that sort of exploitative behavior in a lot of different movies. Uh, but this one I don't think quite falls into that because I think it ultimately winds up uh, being so bold and brazen in it and then really raising the question to the audience how are you responding to it? It almost transcends the nudity in this. And particularly when it comes to that scene, right? So with regard to Silver, right? So uh, she's going to go ahead and be have this, have her, uh, her tail cut off and then be uh, real legs, uh, real female genitalia. 
and uh, she's going to become a woman, right, and lose her voice in the process. And I couldn't help but see in that a great metaphor for plastic surgery, uh, which is such a dominant part of our world today. Uh, and so I think that you see in this, like she is giving up her uh, identity, her, her, her true essence as a creature in order to become a manufactured something else uh, for this man who's really ultimately a, a dope. I mean, the character she falls in love with, the bassist, isn't a particularly compelling individual. And of course, that's true to The Little Mermaid. The prince is a is not a noble figure in that in that fairy tale. And so I think that it really does get at something that's uncomfortable in our world to talk about, but because it's done in a fantastical way, uh, it allows us to explore it and then to bring it into a conversation uh, about how do we look at plastic surgery in our world today and how women mutilate their bodies in order to advance a career, uh, whether it might be, you know, just something like a, a nose job or um, uh, 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 facelift or whether it's going to be a breast augmentation or whatever it might be, right, for the purposes of career, for the purposes of making themselves desirable to uh, men, whatever it might be, the mutilating of the body for this cosmetic purpose, it really gets at that. And I think it, it proposes it in a, yes, in a fairly surrealist way but because of that it allows the conversation to take place yeah I, I think the film was definitely getting at that um and well it's just it, it seemed very on the nose to me i guess uh but i i do think that you can look at the story of the little mermaid through that lens and I think it's important to take fairy tales like that and try to apply them to, to our current state of affairs. I mean, that's that's kind of why they're universal stories, right? I mean, they they should be able to transcend generations like that. Um, I, I was curious what you thought of, you know, just the film's use of either practical effects or visual effects or lack thereof. Like I had mentioned earlier, you know, I felt like there was kind of a, some signs of budgetary limitations where a lot of these transformations were happening off screen. Uh, I felt like they maybe wanted to show more of that and just weren't quite able to. So it's a lot of cutting away and cutting back. Uh, did you find that to be distracting at all or, or what were your thoughts on some of the visual effects? I, certainly I noticed it, but in a good way, I think, I mean, I found it actually refreshing okay. to see that you're creating the illusion through editing and then practical effects. I'm sure there's a little bit of CGI somewhere in there uh, in terms of a couple of the shots. Yeah. But I think the creature designs I really found very successful. I mean, it, it, it's not a mermaid like what you would see in your imagination, right? Uh, in terms of what would be formed, uh, these very uh, sexy-looking tails. I mean, it looks like a fish. It looks like an animal, right? Um, well, it's kind of, so it's I really, kind of repulsive in many ways. I mean, I think they were going out of the way to make the tails be not appealing in some ways, which was interesting. Well, I think that's where how the horror elements can be always sort of present in that you see that these are not uh, the mermaids of, you know, I don't know, late night Cinemax, right? These <laughs> these are real, uh, potentially dangerous man-eating animals. Yeah. And so because of that, I mean, it does create that, that uh, always potential for danger, that potential for threat. When you see... 
uh, uh, Golden actually eating a man and carrying his heart out into the water, uh, it makes sense because of that character design, right? But I also really like the fact that it's practical, that it has a weight. You can see how it's interacting in the room and the environment. CGI just doesn't have weight. I mean, even the best of it just doesn't quite belong in the environment and where it is, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was fun to see that. And yeah, I mean, I think the reason why I probably noticed the the lack of uh, CGI and the fact they were editing into the transition stuff is because you so often see the CGI effects now. Uh, but I would say I actually kind of found myself enjoying that they were figuring out how to do it in editing as opposed to spending millions of dollars on really a superfluous effect that doesn't need to exist. Yeah, I mean, I didn't necessarily feel like I needed to see more transitions or more visual effects but i, I don't know I, I felt like there could have maybe been a more elegant way to approach some of that other than just cutting away uh but it, the practical effects i thought that were there were were well done and um I, I think a lot of the cgi was enhancing kind of the tails and some of the sequences uh otherwise it seemed to be pretty minimal I mean, I'm sure it probably could have been a little more elegant, as you said, and no doubt this partly is because of budgetary constraints, you know, that you're not doing more elaborate setups in terms of those transitions. Um, So I will, again, I think Shmojinska is clearly a a young director. And so there are things where, and she's not necessarily, based on this this one film, uh, not necessarily that immediate international talent that you go, wow, okay, watch out, right? Uh, but I do think that there's enough talent here that you can say, well, there's there's potential for this to, to really develop, and I think this is a strong start. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I have to recognize that uh, she has talent. Um, but as you said, it's just it's a film you have to go with and or, or not, and uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea for sure. Um so Nate, was your initial reaction to uh, one of love? I mean, that kind of sounds like that's what it was, where you just decided to go with it and you just bought into it from your first viewing. Is that accurate? Oh, that's absolutely accurate. Yes. Okay. So I picked this up uh, as a blind buy. The cover itself was was enough to get me uh, to pick it up. So the artwork on the Criterion release, I hadn't even heard of it until I saw that they were releasing it. Uh, and I was like, oh, I'll pick it up at the Barnes & Noble 50% sale, right? And so I picked it up last November, watched it. And again, there was that first few minutes where I thought, what am I getting into? And I just said, go with it, have fun. And I really did. I really loved it. And I would say that when I was watching it, I loved it purely on that aesthetic level. I agree with you, Matt, that the final, I'd say the final third is where it really, really kicks into high gear in terms of plot points and in terms of um, thematic resonance. But I think it really does work for me at that level, on a thematic level. I found it a very refreshing and uh, uh, frank and honest examination of uh, modern mores regarding how we look at women and uh, the exploitation of women. And I, I really, really did appreciate that uh, and how it handles those questions. So I, I really uh, did fall in love with it. And then watching it this uh, round in preparation for our talk here tonight, I definitely had the same feeling as I was watching it. Like, yeah, it's weird. 
And not everything quite works, but I think it's one of the best films from last year as far as U.S. releases are concerned. And uh, I loved it probably more the second round than I did the first. But I can understand. I mean, I, I definitely picked it with the idea that you and I were going to have different opinions. So maybe we could just, Matt, because obviously you didn't, you didn't go with it. So what, what was it that kept you from going with it? Oh, well, I mean, I think I got into a lot of that. I, I just felt like there was a, the genre elements I just felt didn't quite come together as well as the film was trying to, to link them. And yeah, again, I, I felt the, it was very on the nose in terms of what it was saying metaphorically or thematically. Uh, I felt it was, I mean, taking the story of the little mermaid and, and not really, I mean, it's transplanting it into this surrealistic 1980s Poland. Right. And part of me wonders, you know, why is it in this setting beyond the fact that this is the time the the director grew up in or these are elements that she's familiar with, which is fine and, and that can help inform the film aesthetically in a more accurate fashion if that's the environment you grew up in. But I mean, how does that how does that enhance this film from that standpoint? Um, but I I again just the fact that certain artistic films or art films or however you want to label them whenever they just get into that realm of weird for weirdness sake it just turns me off right away and and i admit part of that is just my own preferences in terms of filmmaking and genre just not a big fan of the 80s uh not a big fan of musicals so i think this film had a real uphill battle with me from the get-go just in terms of my preferences so I, I have to admit to just personal bias in that regard but I can I still feel like I can step back and say okay if you like these kinds of films I think this is a film you'll enjoy um, there is some solid craft here uh, I think it does show some promise for the director as a filmmaker and I think a lot of people as I said would, would really enjoy this so if you like David Lynch if you like Cronenberg if you like 1980s films uh, or 1980s music I should probably say more specifically because I don't think this film is really a 1980s style film but uh, it's no not at all yeah not at all Um, you know this is something to to check out but it's I think it's a a pretty narrow window in terms of who might enjoy this film I'm surprised you loved it that much but at the same time I'm not (laughs) Uh, there are times where I, I am surprised by the kinds of films you you seem to dig, uh, but I'm getting less surprised, I guess, as time goes by. That's a good word for it. A film that I dig. I think that's a good <laughs> way to describe this. I dig this movie. Absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, I would say I agreed with you, uh, Matt, about the setting in the 80s. I was like, what it could be the purpose of that? Particularly because there's absolutely zero mention of the communist regime right yeah. uh, and the oppressive nature of it and I, so i did think why, why would they set it in the 80s right and there's a perhaps a bit of the nostalgia element right and if i like a certain kind of music that i want to set it back in that time um so i do 
I'm not 100% certain that it it's warranted to have made it a period piece with regard to that, because it seems like it could easily have been set in modern day and wouldn't make a bit of difference in terms of the of the style, the story. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the, there's a small thought of, well, in a modern day when you'd have cell phones and the internet, this would then have to be something we'd have to incorporate into the store and we didn't really want to deal with that. So maybe that was a, a behind-the-scenes decision of, hey, we said in the 80s we don't have to deal with any of those modern technologies that would exist and would naturally maybe come into play here. But as I watched it again, particularly that musical number where they're in the stores and they've just kind of come in and they're going to embrace this world, it did actually remind me a little bit uh, in my neighborhood growing up of the Polish family that moved into our town uh, and their reaction to America and how it was that when the West came in, or when they finally got to experience the West, how overwhelming it was and how intoxicating it was in some points. And so is there an element to which there's an allegory here with the mermaids uh, coming out of the sea into this big city, uh, themselves going through a similar sort of situation? Is there maybe an allegory there that would be lost on us as Americans but might exist for Polish audiences. I don't know. Uh, so that's potentially just me trying to read something into it. Uh, but I did wonder if maybe there might be more of a thought to putting in the 80s than what I had initially thought of. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, as I watched it, this part kind of missed me uh, the entire time, uh, the first time I saw it, but the, the relationship that emerges with the policewoman and Golden, uh, the uh, exploitative nature of that, which again, maybe couldn't have happened today because that's the police state, right? And so she becomes a metaphor of the police state uh, with this young uh, girl. Uh, And unfortunately, the film, uh, in the editing, they took out a couple of things later on. I saw in the deleted scenes with the uh, policewoman that if they'd been kept it, I think would have hammered that idea home more thoroughly uh, in that at the tail end, she would have been actually there uh, to try to shoot and kill Golden as she's leaving. Uh, and I think that um, would have had the idea of, okay, the police state try. I mean, there's just like the way those character scenes, they had a little bit more with her in the deleted scenes. You see her, um, her she herself, the policewoman, is actually using Golden and then uh, seeks to try to to kill and destroy her as well. And so I, I do think that there might have been something there, but it kind of got lost in, in the final in the final product. Yeah, it would have been interesting if the Cold War element was a little more incorporated into this, but I don't know. It, maybe thematically it would have gotten too convoluted. Uh, but yeah, 1980s Poland and just the the... the the dark cloud of communism was front and center, but it, that does seem to be pushed to the background here. And granted, it is a more surrealistic, fantasy-oriented version of 1980s Poland. So maybe that was just an element they decided to kind of dispense with, even though that policewoman character is still somewhat um, in the film. I mean, it's a pretty limited portion of the film, I guess. But I didn't really get into any, any, of, the, any of the deleted material, so that's interesting that, that those scenes exist. Um, it sounds like it's something they dispensed with. But then it kind of goes back to, well, why is she even in the film at all, right? I mean, okay, so we kind of make that point, but you could say that that whole sequence had an exploitative quality to it. 
uh, unless we're kind of hammering home the idea of a police state beyond that little segment, you wonder how much value that character has altogether. Right. It's a fair point. I guess that's where I'd say that's that immature voice, right? Yeah. I think it's not, it's not finessed as well as it could be, but I still think where it succeeds for me, it really succeeds. Uh, and I guess, you know, getting back just to the, I've spoken about the character of golden. If we can look at the character of silver here, uh, as our, our fundamental protagonist, uh, with regard to the story, uh, I thought that the scene, uh, where after she's had her surgery and then she and, uh, Miatik are going to have sex, right? How he immediately walks away from it. Uh, I thought that was actually a very fascinating scene because as soon as she starts to bleed, uh, he immediately becomes re- uh, repulsed and walks away from her. And it struck me as being, in a certain sense, almost a metaphor of pornography uh, in our world today, that men want the fantasy, they don't want the reality. And we've made that a, a sort of a, just a general way of operating in our world today. And as soon as you get into the complications of a woman having a period and being more than just a fantasy creature, uh, and they become actually a real woman, uh, a lot of guys ba- bail. They'll just walk away. And I thought, well, isn't that a fascinating little idea that they're playing around with there as well? So I think there's actually a fair amount of substance here that's worth teasing out and worth exploring. And perhaps more of it could be apparent if I was able to truly understand all of the lyrics in their native language, right? Yeah. Um, you get you get a gist of the songs, uh, but I do wonder how much is missing in translation. Yeah, that's always a struggle with um, with films like this, especially if there's music involved. The only other foreign language musical I can think I've I think I've seen is The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, uh, mm-hmm. which is a very good uh, movie. I haven't seen it for a while, but again, it's that same thing. How much am I really getting of what was going on in the original? Uh, certainly, some of it can still be communicated through just the sound. Some of it can be communicated through the visual, but. And a musical in particular, right, so much is dependent upon the musical compositions uh, that there's, I think, I think the gap is much more apparent in a situation like this than it would be uh, in a typical foreign film that's being uh, watched by a a non-native speaker. So, well, Matt, uh, maybe just getting into the the question of Criterion's release here, uh, I assume... Uh, you saw this on Filmstruck. All of the features yeah. that are on the Blu-ray are also on Filmstruck. Did you have a chance to watch any of them at all? Or I, No, I'm afraid not. I, <laughs> I can't say that I was inspired to dig into them very deeply. But I, I, the deleted material, I, I wouldn't mind checking some of that out, especially after the, some of the scenes you described. Because I think, um, I wonder if some of the you know, inclusion of some of those would have been helpful. Besides the ones with the policewoman, I don't know that the others necessarily added much. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a little bit of extending on some of the musical scenes, and then there's a little bit more in the beginning, that sort of prelude uh, that uh, takes place. But beyond that, uh, the, really the ones that struck me were the ones with the policewoman. Uh, and so that was that was the part that I thought, well, that would have been interesting to see in the final film if they had kept those extra elements there. Uh, as well. There's a pretty good making of documentary uh, that they made about it. It's about 40 minutes long. It has uh, um, 
interviews with the two leads as well as with the uh, crew, with the choreographer, uh, with our director, Shmoshnitska, uh, with the uh, composers and the screenwriter. So uh, what I found interesting in that was just how the writing of the script uh, worked in terms of the working, the collaboration between the writer, the composers. Uh, they were uh, lifelong friends, it sounded like, and so uh, that became... Uh, process by which they uh, collaborated and the mermaid element actually was a later addition uh, because they found it too hard to make a film about their experiences uh, growing up the the composers for it also grew up in a situation like this and it's maybe worth pointing out the the original polish title actually translates as the daughters of dance party yeah uh, so uh, a little Insight then, I guess, of why that title is the original Polish title as opposed to the lure uh, in the English uh, title of it. Uh, so I, I thought it was an interesting re- uh, viewing. I would recommend that. That There's also a couple of uh, short films from Smojitska uh, in terms of her earlier work. So one's a documentary about an opera singer called Viva Maria. And then there's also Arya Diva, uh, which is uh, a short film that she made when she was in film school. So obviously a big influence for her is music. Uh, all of them have are heavily influenced with music, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised, I guess, if she keeps going down that road uh, for her work uh, with regard to future films. And then finally a trailer as well. Uh, so that's the, tr- the materials. Um, it's a great presentation on the Blu-ray. Sounds great, looks great. Uh, so I would recommend, certainly anybody who's a fan, I'd recommend they get this this release. Uh, so I guess now, Matt, the question, I, I'm sure I know your answer. Does this belong to the Criterion Collection? Yes, I think it does. No. Uh, I, 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 don't, I mean, I, I'm not a fan. Again, I, I think that there's a lot to admire here for, for filmgoers that appreciate these kinds of films. Uh, it just wasn't my cake and pie, as I would say. But uh, in terms of its place in the Criterion Collection, I, I guess I'm not, I'm not seeing why it would deserve a, a spot uh, beyond the fact that Janus Films distributed this. So if they distribute it, it ends up in the Criterion Collection. And, and I see why they, they picked up this film. I mean, it's a very unique film. There's really nothing like it out there. Uh, it's uh, definitely a a rare offering to American audiences. So I can see why, why Janice was interested in distributing it. It certainly is a unique film. Uh, definitely. I'm glad Janice did distribute it. It's a sad commentary on American society that this movie didn't even make a hundred thousand uh, dollars, but we'll spend over a hundred million dollars on tickets for ready player one, uh, which is totally devoid of anything creative to say. Uh, so, well, maybe not totally, but practically devoid of anything creative to say. Uh, and so this, I you know, wish it had found a bit more of an audience, uh, especially since I liked it. But it's, it's a very divisive film. I think, Matt, most people probably would wind up in your camp on this one, uh, not liking it. Uh, so if you're a horror fan, you wouldn't like the musical elements. If you're a musical fan, you wouldn't like the horror elements. Yeah, uh, it's tough. It's a bold and audacious film. Uh, to try to blend these two together. I think it works, but I can see that you're taking two very distinct target groups and genres that don't naturally come together. 
And so other than maybe Sweeney Todd, I don't know of anybody else who's tried to do something like this uh, anytime recently. So uh, it's definitely uh, a unique, a new unique film. Um, you know, Criterion Collection, I, you know, I've said in the past, I think when we were reviewing uh, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, that you know, it's a little hard to say a, a movie should be in the collection right when it just came out. You know, yeah. Can you really say it's important? I, I don't know what this movie... It, certainly, it's barely had an audience, right? So how, what's its importance? Other than uh, maybe it is the first Polish musical, if that fact that I read is correct. Uh, I suppose you could say it's important in that regard. Uh, but otherwise, I can't think of how you can say it is important and therefore should be a part of the collection. Uh, so I would say as least as of the year 2018, the answer is no, but maybe in the future, that answer would be worth revising uh, in terms of whether it belongs in the collection. Yeah, I can see this developing a cult following in the future. And I, I think the film wants to be a cult film and it'll probably get its wish in the years to come. Well, if this podcast had any part in helping with that, I will consider this podcast a success. <laughs> well, there you go. And I want to thank everybody for listening to us tonight as we have our conversation. And please join us next month as we will be discussing Robert Bresson's Pickpocket, which will be debuting on the first Friday in June. Thank you and keep collecting. <laughs>